Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. And a very good afternoon to you. It's wonderful to be in your company, coming to you a little bit earlier than usual on this Wednesday afternoon. It's uh, four minutes past two, shorter news, and of course, um, hearing in the news of a terrible terrorist attack once again in Eretz Yisrael, in Israel, and of course our hearts and thoughts are with those who uh, suffer at the hands of these uh, horrible, horrible events, um, and most particularly, I guess, um, not that any one is more or less important, but brings it closer to home when one thinks about the fact that one of the victims was a young Chabad rabbi who uh, spent his life in uh, helping to feed the poor in a uh, Kolel Chabad uh, place in Beersheba, um, knocked down off his bicycle uh, by this terrorist attack who just stabbed three other people. Um, so a heinous and terrible, terrible event to uh, mark this occasion or to think about on this particular time. Um, but perhaps if we spend some time in contemplation about what we should be doing and things that we need to know from a Jewish point of view, from a spiritual point of view, on this uh, edition of Judaism 101.9, Hopefully, the uh, neshamas of those who have passed will uh, have the credit of this learning. And uh, to those who uh, are suffering, uh, families and uh, other people who are hurt by these heinous and terrible attacks, hopefully they will be comforted um, in uh, the way that only Hashem can comfort them um, by uh, bringing about a, a healing and a peace and a happiness and so on that they will be able to look forward to in their own lives. And of course, yes, it is a week when a great sage, Rabbi Kanievsky, passed away and the funeral held on Sunday, attended, as they say, conservative es estimates, about three quarters of a million people who gathered together to pay tribute to this great Torah giant, a great scholar of our generation. And um, therefore, we think about that as well at this time. And then, of course, thinking about the fact that here we are um, in the week after Purim, which means that it is three weeks to go to Pesach, and there is so much to know and so much that we need to think about um, and have in mind in our build-up to that awesome, wonderful, and beautiful event called Pesach, which is now um, not far away. And if you have heard your uh, wife or your mother's um, or your sister's um, uh, mix masters going in the Pesach kitchen. Well, it's a sound of Pesach is uh, close by and, uh, you know, the stocking up of all the foodstuffs that are necessary and making sure that you have your matzahs, your wine and everything in place. Um, so hopefully, together as a Jewish people, we can look forward to a great and wonderful Pesach where we will have a uh, beautiful time of geula, of redemption, that not only will come about for each and every one of us, but for all of those who are suffering at this moment. And of course, we need to, at the same time, spare a thought for people who are going through plagues of their own, um, in not in Egypt, but of course in the Ukraine, where uh, there is uh, terrible pain and suffering that is being inflicted on people. And our brothers and sisters who are there 
Jews and non-Jews alike who are suffering um, our hearts, thoughts, minds, and hopefully our help in some way, if it's uh, not in the least of which is in a spiritual fashion, should go out to all of them to help them in this time, in this hour of need, pain and suffering. It's hard to believe that in our time that uh, war is still used as a way to settle disputes this kind of thing of, uh, you know, step outside and I'm going to give you a hiding in the playground uh, type of thing we thought was something that was certainly doesn't belong in our time, doesn't belong in our century, and yet being used uh, right now with uh, deadly, deadly venom and uh, a hatred and a a passion and a complete um, kind of, while all the missiles seem to be guided, but it's completely misguided in thinking that this is the way that you're going to resolve um, um, all sorts of issues that may exist between people on every single level. Hopefully, very, very soon, we will know a time of geula, of redemption, that we f- celebrate both on Pesach and Purim, uh, from which we have just come. And hopefully very soon we will see the ultimate gula, the redemption with Mashiach, when there'll be no more war and there'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more death and dying. There'll be no more sickness, illness, uh, difficulty, poverty, and so on. All of these scourges will be put to rest. And hopefully that will happen very, very soon. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. The Talmud in Tainus, in the Gemara Tainus, brings us a fascinating story. If you turn to page 19a in the Gemara in the Talmud, Tainus tells us a quite well-known but fascinating story about a man called Choni Hamagal, called Choni the Circle Maker. Do you know the story? Well, once happened that people came and they petitioned Choni the Circle Maker, as he was known, and they said, pray that rain should fall. Choni replied to them and he said, go and bring your Pesach ovens indoors so that they should not dissolve, promising them that there was going to be torrential rains. You've got to be careful. Your Pesach ovens, you may not be able to bake matzahs in them because the ovens in those days used to sit outside, I guess. And uh, if they became flooded, of course, it would jeopardize the ovens. Be careful, he said, that they should not dissolve. He then davened, he prayed, but alas, no rain fell. So what did he do? What did he do? He drew a circle and he stood inside. So he drew a circle in the sand and he stood inside the circle and he said to God, Master of the universe, God Almighty, your children turned to me because I'm like a member of your household. I swear by your great name that I'm not budging from here until you have compassion on your children. The Gemara relates, the Talmud says, a, a little drizzle began, started drizzling. Sakhani then says, that's not what I asked for. I asked for rains to fill the cisterns, to fill the trenches, and to fill the reservoirs. The rains started coming down then in torrents. Sakhani then said, that's not what I asked for. I asked for rains of goodwill. I want rains of blessing and rains of generosity. And then the proper rain began to fall. No longer was it this torrential flooding rain, but it was a proper rain. But it actually continued this uh, kind of uh, persistent rain that continued to fall until the Jews went out of Yerushalayim up to the Temple Mount uh, 
because of the flooding caused by the rains. So they came to Khani and they said, just as you prayed that the rains should fall, now please pray that they should go away. So he said to them, go and see, go take a look, this was his answer, if the stone of claims has been dissolved yet. Now what is the stone of claims? It's a fascinating part of the story, which is not often spoken about. The stone of claims we um, have a description in another Gemara, in the Gemara in Baba Metziah, it describes the stone of claims in Yerushalayim was a stone, a place, where whoever had lost something would go there, and whoever had found something would go there, and uh, the, they placed their claims there, so the latter would stand and proclaim. The former submitted his identification marks and received it back. So in other words, it was a place where claims of lost and found were actually settled. So this huge stone, imagine, that stood somewhere outside the temple in Yerushalayim. This stone was known as a big stone, but it was a marking place for claims to be settled, for lost and found disputes to be uh, sorted out. You know, there's a rule that if you find something, you need to um, make sure that you state that you found something. You can't just pick it up and take it and make it your own unless there are certain uh, re requirements that are met. In other words, it's a place of where nobody could possibly be claiming it, but if it's something that you pick up and it could belong to somebody, you have an obligation to actually state this claim. You have to state that you have found this item. And so too, if you've lost something, you should state that you've lost something. And then, of course, there are rules and regulations as to how one recognizes that it is the right person who is claiming this lost article. Imagine you said, I've lost, I found a hundred rand, and somebody uh, then says, okay, um, I lost 100 rand, um, he could just be reacting to the amount that you are stating. I guess today for 100 rand, people wouldn't even bother, but let's imagine even a bigger amount. So you claim that you have found hundreds of thousands of rand, and you mention the number. Of course, anybody is going to jump on that and say, yes, I lost that. But how are they going to be able to prove it? So the way that Torah tells us that it's got to be done is I found some money. And if you can get the number right. If you can tell me the amount or you can tell me how it was wrapped or you can tell me what it said on it or uh, what sort of a bag it was in or whatever, you're providing certain simanim, you're providing certain signs with which these things can be identified. Now, it's an amazing thing that Choni Amagal, this Choni, the circle maker, mentions this stone of claims. It clearly was something that was essential to Jewish life. And he was saying here that if that stone of claims has not been washed away, if that hasn't gone away, well, then the rains are not of a flooding nature whereby people can't go and continue making their claims. And therefore, we actually um, don't want to jeopardize rains from falling, and we don't want to ask God to actually stop those rains. They are gishmei bracha, they are rains of blessing, rains of prosperity, and so on. Now it's told that the famous Shimon ben Shatach, who was uh, one of the great Talmidim, uh, Talmidei Chachomim, actually that are mentioned even in Pirkei Avot, we read about Shimon ben Shatach, who was one of the leaders of the generation, he sent a message to Chani, and he said to him, if not for the fact that you are Chani, I would have issued a decree of excommunication against you. I would have put you in Khairim. But what can I do against you? 
who nags. He used the word nags. He says, You are uh, someone who nudges the Almighty and he fulfills your wish. If he fulfills your wish, wish, it's like a child who nags his father and his father fulfills his wish. So since you are Khani, you are one of God's kind of chosen children. You've got a special place. And as Khani himself said, he had this great access to God and to godliness. The people knew that they could come and implore Khani, and Khani would be able to make that rain. Well, why it's significant is because we're told that today was the day on which this famous story occurred. The story of Khani Amaga, we're told, happened on the 20th of Adar Shani in um, the year, the first century of the, before the common era. So going back a couple of thousand years ago, imagine that that was happening today because it was a year when in Adar, just before Pesach, uh, it went the whole month had gone by and it hadn't rained yet. And so this was why they actually sent for Khani and therefore the whole thing about getting ready for Pesach and so on all comes to play. We're told that this all actually happened today. Today, 20th of Adar, um, just before we go to uh, to uh, the festival or get involved in the festival of Pesach, this actually was all happening those thousands of years ago today. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Now, I'm sure we all know that there are many different kinds of miracles. If we think about the Pesach kind of miracles and we think about the Purim kind of miracles, we can certainly see the difference. It doesn't take, as they say, a rocket scientist to actually have to work out the difference between what happened Pesach and what happened Purim. When we take a look at or we think about the concept of a miracle, of a miraculous occurrence, our minds probably immediately jump to more the Pesach kind of miracles. We think about something miraculous as being something that defies nature or something that goes way above and beyond what uh, we have come to call nature. Now, let's pause for a moment and think about the fact that most things that happen in nature are themselves miraculous. Think about the sun rising in the, in the morning. Is that not a miracle? Would we call it a miracle of nature? It is actually something natural happens every day and because it happens every day it becomes what we term natural if we think about the uh, growing of a leaf on a tree it is absolutely miraculous but we call it nature if we think about the fact that i can look through my eyes and i can see we call that natural it is a great and wondrous and incredible miracle that god made us Sighted, and he made us have the ability to hear and to taste and to love and to all of the other things that we can do and that uh, nature seems to have um, at play and around us. We think about all of those things as being natural. When things go above and beyond that, we call them miraculous. When the sea flows and keeps on crashing to the shore, we call it natural. It is something stupendous. It is something amazing. It is something miraculous. It's one of the things that uh, always as a, as a child, I guess, and even today is fascinating that the tides of the ocean are actually controlled by the moon. 
the gravitational pull of the moon um, has an effect on the tides. It's fascinating. It's mind-boggling. It's not only amazing. It's really earth-shattering. It's incredible. We call it natural. When there is a change to that and when you have an event like the sea splitting, as it did for the Jewish people to pass through, we realize that this only could have happened with some kind of huge divine intervention, which took place at that moment and enabled the Jewish people to pass through on the dry land on uh, through the parted sea. And if we really think about it and we look into what Torah says about it, well, the sea actually split into 12 different channels. We always think about it in the way that it's predicted rather depicted in the movies or the depicted in uh, picture form and so on. Our natural mind tells us that uh, <coughs> there must have been something at play um, as the wind blew from the one side and blew from the other side. There was probably some sort of an earthquake and all of these things conspired to make this uh, strange tide um, and people were able to pass through on dry land. It happened punct exactly at the right time. And of course, nobody can really explain that. But if you take a look at the Torah's account of it, it actually tells us that there were 12 different channels for each one of the tribes to walk through a channel, a tunnel um, that was created um, for each one to walk through on dry land with water in between them. This is something stupendous, something phenomenal, something that only God could have done, that only God could have brought his power to bear over the natural order that he himself created to make this change, and we call that a miracle. And so we'll agree that when it comes to Pesach, the kind of miracles that we celebrate in the Chag, in the great festival of Pesach, and the Geula, the redemption of Pesach that it celebrates, that's coming up, we're talking about miracles of the earth um, uh, miraculousness and miracles actually that could only be explained if we think about them as having come directly they come from heaven they come from God it's the power of God is the only one who can overrule these um, natural order things and so each one of the plagues, each one of the events that leads up to our exodus, each one of the events that follows the exodus and that we celebrate when it comes to the Chag, the festival of Pesach, we understand the Nisim, we understand the Niflaot, we understand the miraculousness of it all. When it came to a Chag, to a festival like Purim, Purim happens in a much more, let's term it, down-to-earth fashion. And in this much, much more down-to-earth fashion, as we know, God is kind of hidden. There's the idea of him being masked. Now, we all know about masks and we all know about what they mean today because, unfortunately, we have had to uh, take a whole new view and relationship with masks over the last couple of years during the pandemic. But the idea of God and everything being masked, what you actually see is not really what you get. There is something much deeper to it. And so Esther is um, kind of hidden her Jewishness, her Judaism is hidden. There is so much hiddenness in the story of the Megillah and the story of uh, Purim that we celebrated last week, and not the least of which is that God and godliness is actually hidden. God's name is not famously mentioned in the Megillah, except in a euphemistic kind of a way. God is referred to in disguise where we have the word Hamelech, the king, which refers, of course, to Achashverosh each time we read it. But if we dig a little bit deeper, we understand that the real Melech, 
the real king is the king of kings who's pulling all the strings, who's making everything happen, who's bringing about these fundamental um, changes to the natural order, even in the relationships and in the interpersonal events that take place that happen um, in the entire unwinding, unraveling of the Purim story. And so the decree is something that comes from God, and its annulment is something that comes from God. But these were things that were laid out before us and that happened in the story of Purim in a kind of a natural environment. It was people who made the decree. It was people who gathered together and made the pleas. It was people who got together. And similar to our story of Chani Amagal uh, with uh, Mordechai and Esther and the people that they gathered together, that they implored God and they said to God, we cannot allow this decree, to, you cannot allow this decree to take place. Please, we're begging you. Your people are committed to return. Your people are committed to doing the things that you want from them. Your people are committed not only through Mordechai not bowing down to Haman, but we're committed to not bow and bend to everything that these Persian rulers are uh, throwing at us, are instructing us to do. We are committed to you, God, and God Almighty. We know that you're the only one who can and will take away this terrible, terrible decree. And so there are kind of down-to-earth natural occurrences. There are ordinary things. There's no great lightning and thunder. There's no uh, um, parting of Red Seas, and there's no plagues. There's none of that stuff. The only thing that happens is that through a series of strange occurrences, interwoven circles of events that conspire and that to get together to bring about the eventual Geula, the redemption of the Jewish people in the time of Haman, Mordechai, Esther, and Achashverosh, this is actually the miracle or the miraculousness or the Geula, the redemption that Purim depicts. Now, the way that our calendar is structured is we are told quite clearly that we have to have Purim one month before Pesach. While that sounds like a strange kind of a of a uh, dictation to have when you have festivals occurring, of course, we think of them all occurring at some kind of an equidistant or there's the same distance between all our chagim. They all work as a block, as we have mentioned before. Here, Purim, we're told, has to be the month before Pesach because in a leap year, like we have just had, one could have thought that maybe Purim needs to be in the first month. Surely the firsts, we're told that all firsts are more important than seconds. So surely in the first month, of um, Adar, we should have celebrated Purim. No, we're told. It's got to be, and there's got to be a link. There's a link between the Purim kind of Gula to the Pesach kind of Gula. There's a link between the miracles of Purim and the miracles of Pesach. And what is that link? How do we actually, or how are we to actually uh, sort of digest this all and think about it and put it into perspective and make sure that we understand um, what it means that there should be this connection between them. Well, it is probably because each and every one of us needs to understand that God is not only in the big, wondrous, miraculous, um, heaven-sent, um, earth-shattering kind of events that happen. God is here with our day-to-day -day interactions. God is with us when we are negotiating with each other, when we're talking to each other, when we are at home, when we're at work, when we're at play, when we're involved in our daily pursuits, God is there and God is with us when there is something that happens um, in a 
physical kind of a decree or some kind of a ruling that is made perhaps by a government or perhaps by a rulership and so on. There is God and there's godliness uh, behind that all. It is there for a reason. There is a purpose. We don't always understand it as we did not understand what the decree was actually about and why it came about in the times of Haman and Achashverosh. But there is something godly in it. It's there for a purpose. It's there in order to perhaps bring us together, in order to perhaps inspire us to do tshuva, in order to perhaps inspire us to be a little bit better and to make sure that we know that there are faults and there are um, issues that we need to confront and we need to overcome and we need to fix that as we get involved in that kind of a thought process, so we get a little bit closer to understanding that God is behind all of these negative events and then understanding that it's not us who brings about, even if you do have the most successful meeting with uh, <clears throat> the person who made this decree and so on. It's not through you that it actually happened. It is because of God being behind you. Yes, of course, we need to make our own human effort. Yes, of course, even in the time of our crossing of the Red Sea, God wanted to see that there was commitment that the first people, the first person who put his feet in the water and actually got the water right up to his neck, we were told, um, a man called Nachshon who stepped into the water, it took the commitment from even one man or certainly from a few good men took that commitment for God to be able to respond in the way that he did. And so too in the Purim story, it takes the commitment, it takes the drive, it takes the influence and it takes the power of people who have godliness within them. Each and every one of us possesses a part of God. We call it our neshama, our soul. And that is so powerful and so brilliant and so wonderful that when we muster up our own strength in that realm and we put it into play and we make sure that we are doing what we need to do as children of the Almighty, as Jewish people, as people coming together in a way of love, in a way of care, in a way of unity, in a way of togetherness, the power that we have is absolutely incredible. And we need to make sure that we understand that it was through that power and through that strength and even through the hiddenness of God that one gula actually leads to the other. And so too, similarly, as we are standing here on the threshold of a new Pesach, we are also on the threshold of the ultimate gula, the ultimate redemption, which we need to work at through the way of Purim, the natural kind of redemption, as well as through the miraculous kind of redemption that we have coming up very, very soon, please God, in our time. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. I thought today we would conclude with something a little bit different, and uh, that is a Purim story that could have been. It is known as The Wheel Turns. That says, in the small town, there lived a young couple. The husband had learned in yeshiva before his marriage, continued to learn for a few years afterwards. Eventually, it came time to think about earning a living. He went into business, using his wife's dowry for his startup costs. His efforts met with success, and within a few years, he became very wealthy. As the young man became richer, his commitment to his business became greater and greater, until it became the entire focus of his life. All that mattered to him was amassing more and more wealth. In the same village, there were many people living in great poverty. Some had to beg just to keep body and soul together. Others in the village collected money to keep communal charities afloat. The young wife was very generous. No one 
asking for help, left her house empty-handed. The husband, on the other hand, became very stingy. The richer he got, the more his wife's charity bothered him. Eventually, he commanded his wife not to give anything more to those needy people. Of all the festivals throughout the year, Purim was the hardest for him. On Purim, we're commanded to give him gifts of food and charity to the poor, Mishlach Manos and Matanas Levionim. Fulfilling these commandments didn't interest him at all. No one sent anything to him. They all despised him and his stinginess, and he didn't see why he should have to give them anything either. After suffering with these commandments for a year or two, he found an innovative solution. He sent a simple Mishlach Manos consisting of a baked potato and a homentash to his business manager, and he tossed a few pennies to some beggars sitting in the doorway of the synagogue of the shul when he came to hear the Megillah reading, and with this, he considered his obligation fulfilled. As he sat at a table that was overflowing with food about to begin his eight-course Purim feast, he heard knocking at the door and was extremely surprised. It had been a long time since anyone had approached him for money. He sent his wife to see who it was, and as soon as she opened the door, he heard, Happy Purim, Happy Purim. We're looking for donations in honor of Purim. At the door was a group of masked charity collectors. They were going from house to house collecting money for Pesach wheat, for Maoschitim, the charitable fund that provides Pesach supplies for the poor. There's only one short month before Purim to Pesach, and the needs of the poor at this time of the year were great. And so the town's young Torah scholars would dress up in costumes, collecting money for the poor. No one in the village refused them. Well, almost no one. When the man's wife turned returned to the table and asked her husband to give at least a small donation, he yelled at her, told her to send them away empty-handed, and bowing her head in humiliation, she was forced to turn them away and to close the door. The next day, when the rich man returned to work, he discovered that he'd suffered a large loss from an investment that had gone bad. Within a few short weeks, the loss was followed by another sizable loss, and his fortunes continued to plummet until he's forced to sell everything he had, even his wife's jewelry. And one day, he finally had to admit to his wife that he had no choice but to beg for charity. He gave her a stark choice, either put on the beggar's cloak and collect with him, or accept a divorce and relinquish his financial obligations to her. The wife, who'd suffered from his stinginess for years decided to accept a divorce. In time, she married a young widower, a man with a pleasant personality who was well-liked by his neighbors, and they lived a quiet, peaceful life together. They made their home in a nearby village and were known as decent, honest people. He knew, sorry, her new husband didn't stop her from inviting guests into their home and even encouraged her, inviting the poor of the village in himself after he saw that she didn't mind. He was very generous and gave money to charity whenever he could. Perhaps it was him in her merit, or perhaps in his, but his business prospered. And they were also blessed with two beautiful children, a boy and a girl. It was a warm Jewish home, and they lived a happy life together. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. To continue our story, the festival of Purim came around one year, and as the family was sitting down to their holiday meal, they heard knocking at the door. The wife got up to see who it was, and she saw a poor stranger standing there. His clothing was tattered, and she could tell just by looking at him that he was starving. She invited him in, and her husband set an extra place at the table. The beggar could barely keep himself from wolfing down the food. He ate from all the different dishes and delicacies until he couldn't eat anymore. 
And he finally put down his fork. As he finally put down his fork, there were tears in his eyes. It's unclear whether these were tears of gratitude or sadness, the contrast between his family's happiness and his own dire condition. But his hosts did everything they could to cheer him up so that he could be joyful on the happy festival of Purim. They gave him money so that he could buy new clothes for himself. And after Purim, when they'd finished cleaning up and putting their children to bed, the husband and wife sat down and talked about the events of the day. I really feel for that poor man, the husband told his wife. I remember when I used to be poor like that. There was this one Purim when I was starving. I was going to this rich man not far from here in the hope of getting something to eat. He was supposed to be a great, a real miser. But I figured that he might at least give me something to eat in honor of Purim, even if he wouldn't give me any money as I was approaching the house. I met a group of collectors who had been sent away. He didn't even agree to talk to them. I lost hope of getting anything from him and didn't bother knocking. How wonderful the world is. Now, not only do I have plenty to eat and a happy life with you, but we're actually able to invite guests and give food and charity to others. At the same time, we should never forget that everything we have comes from above and is only ours for as long as he wants it to be. He gave it to us as a present so that we can use it to help others. But if he wants, he could take it from us and leave us as a destitute as that poor man. Who knows? Maybe that man once had money. Maybe he was even rich. God lowers the proud and raises the lowly. God turns the wheel of wealth, bringing people high and low. You're right on target, my dear husband, the wife said, wiping tears from her eyes. That beggar was not only rich, he was the same miser. You wanted to approach that Purim, the only one, uh, the one who sent those charity collectors away in such disgrace. How on earth can you know this? Her husband asked in surprise. I know because I was there, she said softly. As that man left our house today, it struck me. Our guest was none other than my first husband. The story of Purim continues through the story of Pesach. Let's remember that whatever we do in this world, and particularly when it comes to our acts of kindness, of charity, they can and they will stand us in good stead. And God forbid, if we do not, um, if we're stingy, if we're miserly, if we turn people away, it could end in us ourselves ending up in that kind of dire situation. I want to wish you well for the rest of the week. Have a great Shabbat up ahead. Look forward to being back with you same time, same place next week on another exciting episode of Judaism 101.9.